Daniel is one of those books that you can buy a dozen commentaries and have a dozen interpretations of what was just read and uh, other passages as well because it is somewhat difficult for us. Uh, Daniel was not writing specifically to us, but God intended it to be for us. So there is an understanding that God wants us to have from this. And uh, hopefully we can reach some of that this morning. Daniel chapter 10, we start with uh, the, the statement that it's the third year of Cyrus's reign. That would make it 536 B.C. Uh, Daniel is uh, probably in his mid-80s, possibly a little you know, closer to 90 at the point in time that this is written. Cyrus is an extremely interesting person for Scripture because something happened to him that was absolutely amazing. Uh, over a hundred years before he was born, there was a Scripture written about him. And so, uh, if you would turn to the book of Isaiah, if uh, or at least mark that down someplace so that you can uh, look it up later. It's uh, absolutely fascinating. Isaiah chapter 44, the last verse, and then the first few verses of uh, verse 45, or chapter 45. This is Isaiah writing. Uh, he, says, uh, he says of Cyrus, this is God speaking. He is my shepherd. Now, this is God speaking about Cyrus. He's saying, He is my shepherd, and He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. That's pretty specific stuff. Okay? Now, let's go on to chapter 45. This says the Lord to His anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose his belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may be not closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of the servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not even know me. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you through, <clears throat> I equip you, though you do not even know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Now, put into your thoughts uh, the last messages that we've had. What, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Israel. He destroyed Jerusalem, literally. He, he leveled the temple. He, he just, you know, completely crushed the people. And then he pulls them out of, of Judea 
and 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 puts them all over his kingdom. And so the and the, and they're told and 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 Daniel figures this out from Jeremiah that they're going to be in a 70-year captivity. And so somewhere along the line there we find out that uh well it's in second chronicles let's look at it second chronicles uh chapter the very last chapter uh it's uh, chapter 26 the last two verses now in the first year of cyrus the king now we're talking or what daniel's saying it's the third year now he says in the first year cyrus the king of persia that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put in writing, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. In Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, let him go up. In other words, he was announcing the, the freedom of all the Jewish people that had been captive to return home, and it was 70 years. I, I, you look at this, I, you have to be amazed. One of the things that got my attention before I was a Christian, uh, I, I set out really in a sense to, to disprove certain parts of it, uh, if nothing more than to satisfy myself, as many of my friends were becoming Christians, is that it was something I didn't need. And the more I looked at it, the more I, I got fascinated with prophetic Scripture and it being fulfilled. And in some cases, so literally that you can go to the, you know, to, to, the very week that Jesus goes into Jerusalem uh, from prophetic Scripture. I mean, it's just so amazing. This is what I'm talking about. Cyrus is mentioned uh, 150 years or so before he was ever born. And then here he talks about that he has, you know, that he's been confronted and he's releasing all of these people. Can you imagine the prophet going up to to Cyrus and saying, look, here's your name. And, and, and uh, let me read this to you. This is what you're going to do. And, and, and then him seeing the charge and realizing your God is the God and, and letting go of, of the Hebrew people. And that was no easy thing to do because they were an intricate part of the economy and they were going to, it was going to be a, a costly venture. A number of people were going to lose their slaves uh, because of the edict that, that Cyrus proclaimed to release them. So, this is an amazing picture of, of what's going on. And Daniel is uh, speaking of this, uh, the third year of Cyrus, after all of this has happened. You know, he's, he's saying, the word was true. And it was a great conflict, and he understood the word, and he had understood the vision, and so. But the the word itself, understanding it, it, just how awesome God is here. Now, 
we're in the third year of Cyrus. And probably the majority of the of the people that were going to leave the uh, uh, Babylonian Empire and, and the the Persian Medio Empire at this point uh, were already gone. There were some reluctant ones uh, that were. Uh, would be eventually coming along. Read through Nehemiah and a couple other places and you'll see some interesting stories in reference to that. But the idea was, uh, there were some people who just, they had become, I can't think of the right word. Maybe for lack of better words, intoxicated with the lifestyle of the Babylonian people. And they had become, uh, store owners and property owners. They had, uh, uh, prospered. Uh, God had blessed them, and in, and then they looked at what they were going to have to leave behind and go and start all over. Forget it. We're going to stay here, and they didn't go. And uh, you know that that was something that that uh, you know was a, a real problem for uh, some of the prophets as they were sharing this uh, that they needed to let go of this and get back to Judea where God had called them. So uh, Daniel. Is here. He's he's in with uh, with Cyrus the king is his king, and it says here very clearly. It says, "In those days, Daniel was mourning." For the, the second verse for three weeks. Now, mourning is a form of prayer for the Hebrew people. If they're, if you're in mourning, you mean, and sometimes it even went as far as sackcloth and ashes as well. Uh, and you had a very specific thing that had upset you that you were mourning for. And, and Daniel is mourning for three weeks. Why is he mourning? Because a lot of the Jews haven't gone yet. Okay, but he says, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all. And by the way, anointing themselves back then was pretty important, uh, especially in the king's court. Because that was what refreshed your body, if you will. Uh, it was uh, the equivalent for us today, taking a shower. <laughs> and so uh, it was. You know, he he didn't anoint himself. He didn't eat the meats. He didn't drink the wine. Now, some people say he was fasting here. It doesn't say that he was fasting in a complete fast. It just says he didn't eat the normal things he ate. Basically, what he's saying is, I did not eat from the king's table. Could he have been eating some bread and drinking water while he was doing this three weeks? It's a possibility. But he is in a what today some people might call a partial fast, at least. So he's fasting and he's praying, and in his prayers he's mourning for the people of Israel. And on the 24th day of the first month, uh, he, by the way, he did this for three full weeks. And then it says that on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen uh, with a belt of fine gold from Uvaz, Around his waist, his body was like burl, and his face was like appearance of lightning. His eyes were flaming torches, his legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of multitudes. From verse 4, Daniel's vision is starting. He's not even anywhere near the Tigris 
he, he's closer to, he's more on the Euphrates than he is on the Tigris. And if you look at a map, you'll see there's a substantial distance between Babylon and on the Euphrates and, and the Tigris River. So he's been transported in his vision to the Tigris River. He sees this amazing picture of, 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 of the, a man that's uh, clothed in, in, in linen and, and brilliant uh, in appearance. This is so close to what John sees in Revelation chapter 1 that I would say probably the majority of the uh, scholars and, and theologians look at this and say this is a what they call a theophany or a pre-incarnate picture of Christ. There's a few that don't agree with that. I happen to be one. And the reason for that, I'll show you momentarily. I believe this is a high-ranking angel that has come to speak to him. And he says uh, to Daniel, uh, well, first off, Daniel says, I alone saw this vision. The men who were with me did not see the vision, but but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So here he is now standing alone in, 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 in the midst of this vision he's having, and he says, I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. In other words, it, it took all of his strength away from him. It's almost like it took his breath away from him. He says he heard the sound of his words. Whose words? This man that he's talking about that he's seen so amazing looking man. He's, he, the sound of his words, he says, I heard. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep. He was so overwhelmed. This idea of falling on his face in, in, in deep sleep is, an, is, is terramont to he fainted. He was so overwhelmed with what he saw and what he was hearing that he faints. He's lost his strength. He has no energy in him. He's melted, if you will, in a sense, before this vision, before this man. Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. In other words, this hand of this man touched him, and he's up on his hands and knees. And he's, but he's still shaking. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. We heard that back in chapter 9, the end of the chapter 9. O man greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you. And stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. I have been sent to you. Uh, and when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up, trembling. He's still shaking. And this man, he says to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. But I like the phrase, fear not. That's something that you hear from the angels in the New Testament as well. At the coming of Christ, uh, at, the, at His tomb, it was, it, you know, fear not. 
We're here to bless you is implied, by the way, in, in the, the thinking of that. Your, your prayers have been heard. And I have come because of your words. In other words, because of your prayers, I have come to you. Now, I want you to look at verse 13 carefully here with me. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. Who's the me? Not Daniel. This is the man that was dressed in linen. The prince of Persia withstood me. 21 days. The prince of Persia is believed to have been either a demonic presence over the area of Persia. If you study the demonic context of, of Scripture, you'll find that they, are, they have ranking and there's, if you will, princes over di- districts and subsequent, you know, sub-demons, if you will, uh, with them. And, and so, it says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Jesus Christ would not have a problem with any of the princes of the demonic. He wouldn't have problems with Satan. Satan has to ask his permission to do anything. And Jesus wouldn't have been in a battle for 21 days and he wouldn't have needed Michael to come alongside and help him. I believe this is two archangels, if you will, serving the Lord and doing the Lord's work, which we see frequently in Scripture and in the Old Testament especially. The, the next verse, verse 14, it says, you know, he, the, he was, he'd come, he was with Michael, they'd uh, interceded with the king of Persia. By the way, uh, the prince of Persia, if being a demonic person or could possibly Satan, because he's also called prince of the air in the New Testament, this type of thing, and the word prince is sometimes given to him as a title. Um, he's trying to block God's Word. That's what He does. That's His number one attack zone. Think about it. Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3. Eve. And He attacks God's Word with her. This is the way Satan operates. If he can get, if he can get us to be doubting His Word, then He's got a hold of us to a degree. Verse 14 says, and, came, I, and I came to make you understand, Daniel, is implied, what is to happen to your people in the last days, for the visions is for the days yet to come. So what's this vision all about that he's coming to bring to Daniel? He says, it has to do with your people, Israel, and the last days. And chapters 11 and 12 deal with the vision and the last days in the end times. Verse 15. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man 
touched my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke and I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me. No breath is left in me. And again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, again, that phrase, Daniel, O man greatly loved, fear not peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And I said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Now, that's a rhetorical question, basically. Because he's already answered that. I've come to you to bring you this understanding of end times. So, do you you get it? Do you understand it? It's kind of like a rhetorical question. Do you know why I've come to you? Do you get it? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you, What is inscribed in the book of truth, there is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Michael was considered the the overseeing angel of of the Hebrew people. And so, what you have here, and and I can't go into all the details, it it would take hours, uh, but what I want to explain to you is is you're seeing a picture of uh, somebody's kind of pulled the curtain back a little bit, and you're getting a glimpse of spiritual warfare. Something that happens in a realm not of the earth. There is a, a battle going on for the souls of man between God's angels and Satan's fallen angels. You understand that Satan was an angel. Maybe, you know, if you went to Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, there's some uh, things that are talking about some kings, but they also apply to the fall of Satan. And, and Jesus says he saw him fall from heaven. He was cast out because he put himself as the favored angel. Uh, the, the, he, he saw himself as, as wanting a throne equal to or higher than that of God. And he was cast out. And within the framework of that rebellion, it says a third of the angels went with him. They are what we call the demons to pretty much differentiate between your Satan and the demons and, 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 if you will, Christ and the angels. And uh, there was a warfare going on. And I want you to understand, people get so caught up with getting concerned about, well, how do we fight the devil? And how do we, we cast him out? And... And, and all the different things that go on. And boy, I'll tell you, through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, there were great movements of casting out demons and so, all sorts of things like that. I'm not saying that that's a wrong thing or a right thing in the sense of casting out a demon. What I'm going to say, though, is the focus. Jesus has Satan on a leash. I want to say that again. Jesus has Satan on a leash. 
He wants to torment Job. He has to ask. And then he's given limitations. He wants to sift or torment Peter. And Jesus says, Peter, I've given him permission. He had to ask. He's on a leash. He can't do anything that is not allowed. And sometimes we look at this and say, God, why are you allowing a war? Why are you allowing this? All we know is, is that somehow this plays into the grand picture of the end, of bringing along the end times and the second coming of Christ, which is what we are to be focused on. To be focused on the coming of Christ. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Come soon, Lord Jesus. And as we pray, we don't pray against... You don't see Daniel praying against the, the demonic. You see Daniel praying to God, worshiping God, and asking forgiveness for the things that he has done in his life, the people of Israel have done in their lives and as a kingdom. And he's, he's coming before God and confessing his sins and then asking God to work out His perfect plan. God, give me eyes to see what my part in your perfect plan is. Is a reasonable type of prayer. Let me see where you want me to be, what you want me to do. And by the way, you know, people say, I, I, if, I, if I could only get a, a sign from God as to what I'm supposed to be doing. And I was told by one of my professors in Bible college, He's already given so many signs, he says, but you're not reading them. He says, read the Word and you'll read it and all of a sudden, you'll, you'll, if you read it with the, the prayer of, of asking the Holy Spirit to convict you, he says, He will show you something that you need to be doing or someone you need to talk to or someone you need to go to and, and minister to. Uh, I had someone the other day say, uh, after, uh, after times of prayer and stuff, and, and, and he was out in the town and and God convicted him to go and speak to somebody. And it turned out it was just what the man needed to hear. And so you have this kind of thing going on. God is orchestrating. And what He's wanting us to do is to look at His Word and... and well, let, let, let me put it this way. We have... A scripture, uh, it's Psalm chapter 40, and I'm not going to go into detail on it, but uh, reading it, but in Psalm chapter 40 it says, I was stuck in a pit, a pit of miry clay. I couldn't get out. As hard as I tried, I couldn't get out. I'm paraphrasing. Okay. He says, and then God came, pulled me out of the pit, and He set me on the rock. The rock is always Christ. He set me on the rock and opened my life to me. Psalm 40 says, we're in a pit of miry clay. All of us have sin. That's the pit of miry clay. We all need to be pulled out of the miry clay and set on the rock of Jesus Christ. And as we're on the rock of Jesus Christ, our response to what God has done for us and opened eternal life to us, our response should be like Matthew 6.33, Seek the Lord first in all things. Hunger and thirst after His righteousness. 
Psalm 51 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. These are the things that I need most. I was thinking, you know, this word that, that, that Daniel was mourning in his prayer, he was uh, just totally engulfed. He was uh, desperate in this prayer. And I was thinking he was desperate for a, a, a word from God. He was desperate for his people and, and the need of God to move them. And this is what he was praying for. And it kind of came, comes to you, you have to think about this. What am I desperate for? What things am I desperate for? Um, I've got to keep a roof over our head. I've got to keep gas in the car. Uh, you know, so I'm desperate for an income or desperate for other things. There's nothing wrong with needing those things and seeking them. But when it comes to what you're really desperate for, it should be the kingdom of God. His righteousness, His holiness. Creating a clean heart in us. These are the things we should be desperate for. This was what Daniel was desperate for. That's why his prayer is so powerful. What do I need most? I need Jesus Christ in me. I need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What do I need to pray for? A daily filling of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says that we're to ask daily for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it's not a one-time occurrence. You don't have a prayer meeting, you get filled with the Holy Spirit and that ends it. It's a day-to-day, hour-to-hour sometimes situation where God uses His Holy Spirit to open you up and to fill you and to get you into ministry where you are. And seeing what He wants to accomplish through you where you are. In communion, the thing that we're so thankful for is, is brought out. We're so thankful for what Jesus Christ has done for us. His death, His burial, and His resurrection is what lifted us out of the miry clay. And then we're, we're placed on Him, in Him, with Him. And our eternity is now with Him. What an awesome thing that we have. And so when we celebrate communion, we, we celebrate the reality, the, the assurance that we have that Christ has covered our sins. The debt is paid in full, complete. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, He meant it was finished. There is nothing left to bring to the table in the way of payment for sin. The only way we take this into us is by confessing. Paul puts it really simply. He says, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, raised from the dead. And we enter into this relationship. 
I would like the. Uh, there she is, Sarah. I was looking. I was, Sarah, I thought, oh no, she's gone with the kids <laughs> uh, for our communion song. And uh, as we sing this song, just let the words minister to you and celebrate. By the way, one more fact. Jesus says He's coming again. He is coming again. That is a done deal. Period. He's come again. He's come once. He's coming again. And, uh, you know, we're, we're longing for that return. And so when we celebrate in communion, we, we celebrate that picture of Christ coming again as well.
before we share communion together. Not a common scripture for communion, but speaks to what we've been talking about today. It's found in the second chapter of Ephesians. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before the foundation of the world, God planned our salvation. That's an amazing thing to think about. But then when you start reading Scripture, you see all the other things that He put into place before they ever happened. It's amazing. And Jesus on the cross, His body, on the cross. He said in, in the, the communion that He shared with, with the disciples, He said His body was the bread broken. And so His body on the cross represents for us the opening door, if you will, to eternal life. Let us share the bread together. His body hanging on the cross, though, was not enough. For Scripture made it clear in the Old Testament and in the New as well in Hebrews that Life is in the blood. And a life was required. A perfect life. A perfect sacrifice. Only Christ could be that. He poured out His blood. He said, as we share this cup, that this is His blood poured out for us to do this in remembrance of Him until He comes again. Father, we thank You for Your love and Your mercy and Your grace. I love the, the Scripture that by grace we have been saved, not of ourselves, but by, by Your mercy, Your love, Your grace poured out on us. Thank You. Cause us, Lord, to seek Your face. Cause us, Lord, to be faithful in our prayers, asking You to cleanse us, creating us a clean heart, to celebrate the fact that You pulled us out of the pit and put us on the rock. Cause us to be people who seek You first. Seek the Kingdom of God first. Hunger and thirst after Your righteousness. You tell us that all these things will be added unto us as, as we worry about the things of the world. If we seek You first and, and, and seek Your Kingdom and hunger and thirst after You, that these things will be added unto us. Help me, Lord. Help us, Lord, to get our priorities straight. We worship You. We praise You. We thank You.
for your everlasting grace. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we close? Uh, We have some refreshments in the back if you uh, have time to share and fellowship for a little while. Lord bless. Thank you for being here this morning. all of you. Thank you for being here this morning. Hi. Fine. You, did you give me a call this weekend? I, I, I called back. Okay.